First Peter, we talked in First Peter about uh, uh, how we are the people of God, and we are given exceeding great and precious promises that we might be partakers of His divine nature. We talked about how you are the light in a world of darkness, and your light is supposed to shine. You're not supposed to put your light under a, under a bushel basket, but you're supposed to be the city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Your light shine. Your light is supposed to shine in the darkness, and we light up the darkness. We also talked about how you're the salt of the earth, and salt is a preservative. Do you know that nothing can happen in the earth unless we let it, unless we allow it? And by sheer neglect, we've allowed a lot of things to happen in the earth. But if we'd been on the job, if we'd been watching, and if we'd been speaking prophetically with the authority that's in the name of Jesus, a lot of things that have happened would never have happened. If the church in Germany during the 30s had stood up and acted like they were the church, Amen. and not a bunch of bigoted anti-Jewish uh, racists, which is what they were. They, they were all Lutherans, and Luther, you know, hated the Jews. Luther was a racist. I don't know if y'all know that or not, but historically, Martin Luther was anti-Semitic. And so the major religion in Germany during that time was Lutheranism. And so they thought the Jews were getting their just desserts. After all, they killed Jesus. And so they let, they let the Holocaust happen, but they had the power to stop it. You see, the church has the power in the earth today. The Antichrist cannot come upon the scene, according to First and Second Thessalonians. The Antichrist cannot even appear. He cannot even make himself known until the church is out of the way because we are such salt that we are preserving this world from uh, from that corruption. But we're also like salt in the sense that you get it in your eyes and it burns. And the wicked's eyes are burning today because of us. That's why they hate us so much. Our very, our very presence in this world burns their eyes. And our light blinds their eyes. And so they do what they can to put out the light. They do what they can to dilute the saltiness. And many, many in the church have been diluted uh, to the point of being useless because we've accepted their philosophies over the Word of God and we've made the Word of God of no effect. Amen. But if we would be what Peter said we were, the people of God, the witnesses, the witnesses of God in the earth, then we would, we, would, we would be making a greater difference. And I think what's happening right now is the church is waking up, wising up, rising up, and we are, we're, 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 uh, many of us are entering into our place of authority. And that's what Peter is talking about. In the last days, you're not supposed to be defeated. In the last days, you're not supposed to be run and hide and, uh, and hide your light under a... Under a, a a sheet somewhere so that nobody will see it. No, you're supposed to be out on the on the housetops shouting out in the darkness, you know, thus saith the Lord. Amen. We're supposed to be an irritant to them. We're salt. Irritate them. We're to be intimidating them instead of them intimidating us. 
And in Second Peter, you know, he starts talking about, you know, the end times, you know. And uh, uh, we talked last week, you know, about how God uh, uh, gave us examples of how he's going to deal with the ungodly. You know, he gave us uh, uh, the example of Noah's time. How in the days of Noah, men were living wickedly and they were rebelling against God and they were rebelling against nature. I mean, they were trying to change nature. They were trying to change the nature of humans. And God destroyed them with a flood. But Noah, being a righteous man, God saved Noah and his household out of that destruction. So for the wicked, it was the end. But for the righteous, it was a new beginning. And get this. When all, when all the water ran down and everything settled down and the ark opened up and Noah and his family come out of the ark, they were the only ones in the world. And they owned the whole thing. They owned the world. God gave, gave them the world. Who, got, who, was given, who inherited the earth? The righteous. The righteous. The righteous. But that seed of wickedness and seed of evil was still in the earth. And so it rose up again, and, and men started doing wicked things. And he said, there, there we have the example of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. People got into these homosexual sins, and they got into this violent uh, perversion of, of nature, which is what homosexuality is. It's a, vile, it's a violent and vile perversion of human nature. There, I said it. It's the truth. And I'll continue saying it because it's the truth. God doesn't hate homosexuals. He wants to free them. He wants them delivered. Well, they're never going to get free or delivered unless somebody speaks the truth to them. So we speak the truth in love. And we've seen, we've seen homosexuals delivered right here in, this church, right in our church, in our own midst. But we want them delivered and we want them healed so that they can... They can fulfill their destinies. Hallelujah. Uh, I think it was Hank Kuhneman said that these that homosexuals, uh, their their destiny is to be evangelists. They're supposed to be evangelists, and so when they come out of their sin and come out of their 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 uh, captivity, they're they're going to evangelize the world. Well, I, I, why not give them that? I mean, I praise the Lord. Amen. We need more workers. Great is the harvest. Pray ye, Lord, of the harvest that he send forth workers. Well, if he, if he sends forth laborers uh, from the ranks of the homosexuals and the lesbians and, and what have you, then what a testimony and what a witness. Praise God. That might be what it takes for some of your relatives to get saved, for some ex-homosexual to testify to them. Wow, that's powerful stuff when you think about it. Well, chapter 3 is, is, about, is about the end. And so let's look at it now. 2 Peter 3, verse 1 says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Now, what's his purpose in writing these epistles? To stir up their memories. He's just reminding them of what they should already know. Amen? 
that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, now this, this is the attitude and heart of scoffers. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. All right? This is what they're saying. But what they're saying is not true. So Peter's writing here that, you know, this, this second epistle is intended to stir us up and remind us that uh, uh, of the prophet's words and of the apostles' commandments and, uh, and, to, and to warn us that in the last days there's going to be people coming along questioning the promise of the Lord's coming and declaring that everything continued as they were since creation. But look at verse 5. For this they willfully forget. He says, no, they forgot about something. They willfully, they willfully forgot the facts. They willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. What did they forget? They forgot that God created. They forgot creation. They forgot Genesis 1. <laughs> they forgot the very beginning of things. By which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. They forgot that. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The same world that God destroyed by a flood, he is going to destroy by a fire, as he promised. They, have, they forget. They, they don't retain this in their thinking. So they make this ludicrous statement that since the beginning of time, all things have remained the same. Well, that's not true. It's not scientifically true. It's not historically true. It's not geographically true. It's not geologically true. It's, it's not true. This, this, this is a completely different world than the world that Adam and Eve lived in. It's a completely different world than the world was before the flood. The atmosphere has even changed. I mean, you, you take any science class and you, you, they'll tell you that the world has changed. But a scoffer is going to tell you, nah, nothing's changed. See, scoffers are willfully ignorant. They willfully turn their eyes to the truth and the facts. And, uh, and we're, we, got a, we got a world full of them today. They want to believe such nonsense as uh, evolution. You know, evolution, and they can't even prove it. They can't prove it. It's, it's, it's unprovable. You can't prove it scientifically, geologically. You can't prove it uh, mathematically. You can't, pr you can't prove it. 
They talk about the missing link. Well, they're the ones that's missing. They're missing from reality. And yet, what's being taught in our public schools? What's being taught all over the world as fact? Something that requires more faith to believe than the Genesis account. It's a fairy tale. It's not even a good theory. It's a fairy tale. And the guy who started it, the guy who started it wrote a second book refuting his first book. But they never even mention Darwin's second book. They don't mention his conversion and his repentance from that folly because they would rather subscribe to what he said first even though he said it was wrong. Did y'all know that? Did y'all know that Darwin wrote a second book saying the first book was a bunch of hooey? <laughs> but which book do they teach out of? Which, which, which theory do they teach as truth? The one that fits their narrative. Amen? And so they are willingly forgetful of these things. Now look at verse 8. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. You know what that means, folks? It means with God, time is irrelevant. God, God doesn't have to get in a hurry. God doesn't wear a watch. He, there's no calendar hanging next to the great white throne. God doesn't have birthdays. He, he, he was never born. So, you know, anniversaries, they mean a lot to us. They don't mean anything to God. Yesterday was my dad's 111th birthday. He was born October 1st, 1911. And so every year, October 1st, I, do, I put something on Facebook to, you know, to let, let the world know that I haven't forgotten my dad. He's been in heaven since 1984. But in heaven, he's not 111 years old. If anything, time go, went backwards. In heaven, my dad's got hair. <laughs> now, he died a bald-headed man. But in heaven, he's got hair. And he's got youth. And, he's, and, and you know, I would recognize him you know, because of the spirit recognition. But physically, you know, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily recognize him because I, I remember this old man. My dad was 40 when I was born. <laughs> but he's probably 30 now in physique. But see, in heaven, time is irrelevant. That's what this means. It doesn't mean that, you know, you can take this verse of Scripture and, and, uh, and use it to twist up and, and justify your eschatology. Because to us, a thousand years is a thousand years. To us, a day is a day. Now, to God, it's irrelevant. But to us, a thousand years is a thousand years, and there's no way you can squeeze it into a day. And who's the Bible written to? Us. Who are the prophecies given to? Us. Who's God talking to? Us. And who are we? We're, we're the people that a thousand years is a thousand years, and a day is a day. So, you know, you don't take what's, what's true with God and try, to, and try to manipulate 
what's happening to us. Are you understanding this? This is good. This is good uh, hermeneutics. Be careful how you interpret Scripture. This is important because of what he says in a little bit. Verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. Don't ever call God a slackard. He'll slap you upside your head. Or he may give me permission to. Don't ever call God a slackard. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. You see, if, if God has delayed his coming, it's because he wants people to get saved. He doesn't want people to go to hell. And you think about it, if the Lord were to return right here today, right here and right now today, is there anybody in this world that you know and love that would go to hell? So don't you care enough about them? Don't, don't you, you, you should at least care enough about them as God does. That's right. And that's why God hasn't, hasn't to come and destroyed the earth yet. It's because God, this harvest that I was talking about, this, this great last day's harvest that God's promised us means more to God than it does to us. We're saying, oh, Lord, come now. Come, Lord, get us out of here. Lord, you know, Lord we want the rapture. And you've got loved ones that would go to hell if that happened. I'm not ready. I'm not ready for my loved ones to go to hell. And so I say, Lord, you, you know, I, I know you can come whenever you're ready, whenever you want to, but Lord, help us get, the, help us get those saved before you come. Because I don't want them to go to hell forever. Hell is a real place, and a lot of people are going there. And a lot of the people that are going there, you know their names. And they mean something to you. So we ought to be saying, Lord, wait a little longer, dear Jesus. Even if it causes us to suffer, we're not willing, we're not willing for our loved ones to, to go to hell. But God, but see, God is long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that it all should come to repentance. And God, I wonder, see, God knows who the last one in is going to be. And when that one gets in, he's going to shut the door to the ark. And everyone that's outside is going to perish. So we need to remember that. The day of the Lord will come. That's what he says in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come day the day of the Lord the day everybody say day. day the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night now does that sound like a thousand years to you first of all it said he says the day and then he says it's going to come like a thief in the night the day of the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night does that sound like a thousand years to you course not you know what a day you know what a day is a day is a 24-hour period and you know God can do a lot in one day if you don't believe it go back to Genesis and see what he did in a day God can do a lot in a day and there's a day coming the Bible said a great day coming 
the Bible talks a lot about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And I believe it's a 24-hour day. And he won't even take all day. It talks a lot about suddenly in the twinkling of an eye. Amen? It's going to happen. It's going to happen in a day. Everybody say it's going to happen in a day. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it shall be burned up in a day. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? When you consider that everything that you know and you know exists, you know about heaven, you know about earth, you know about the stars, it's all going to dissolve in one day. So what kind of people should we be? I think we should be sober. I think we should stay awake. And I think we should get busy. Amen? Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, <coughs> and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we know from Revelation that in the end, there's going to be a new earth and a new heaven will come down the new Jerusalem, the city of God will come down and settle on the new earth. Well, it's going to be some kind of place because we have the dimensions of the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is 12 miles cubed. That means it's 144,000 square miles, but it's in a cube form. That means the, the top where the throne of God is, is 12 miles up. The peak, of, the peak of the New Jerusalem is 12 miles up there. You go up 12 miles right now and you'll freeze to death. There's no air up there. So this new earth is not like this earth. Or it wouldn't even hold the city. Just the city of the New Jerusalem. You can look it up. You can look up the dimensions of it. I think I, I think I missed it. Fifteen hundred miles by fifteen hundred miles. That means uh, from here to Albuquerque, New Mexico. That would be one side of it. So it's about the size of half the United States. And then up 15. <laughs> the, the new earth is going to be one whopping place. Amen? Just, just to hold that city. And there's going to be more than just a city in it. So there you have it. Thank you, Harold. I knew I was off somewhere. It's, 
The heavenly Jerusalem is a big city. Well, it's got to be if it's going to hold billions of people. Amen? And we're not going to be living in government housing. We're going to have some space. Amen. We're, there's going to be fishing. There's going to be, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be little rivers and streams to hike along. Amen. There's going to be mountains there, valleys. I mean, it's going to be a beautiful place, more beautiful than anything we've seen. That's going to take some space. It's all there in the book of Revelation. Okay, so uh, what manner of people should we be then, knowing that these things are going to happen? Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. You ought to be looking forward to these things. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. See, Peter obviously had read what Paul said in First and Second Thessalonians and Corinthians about the resurrection and about the coming of the Lord and the rapture of the church and all that. And he said, he, he said Paul was right. Listen to Paul. Read what Paul had to say. He says, some of these things are hard to understand. Some of Paul's writings are really deep. Hey, Peter was like me. I've read some of Paul's writings and I thought, man, this is deep. Well, at least I'm not alone in that. Peter thought the same thing. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Ding, 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 ding. Bright light bulb going off. He's saying Paul's writings were also Scripture. Now, I'm saying that because there are folks who disregard Paul's writings. There are people who think Paul was wrong, especially when it comes to, you know, husband and wife relations and things like that, you know. But Peter calls Paul's writings Scriptures. And he lumps them in with all the rest of the scriptures. Now, this is, may not mean anything to you, but this, was when, this is before there was a New Testament. None of these letters in the New Testament had been gathered up and put together as the New Testament. But Peter is given validity to the writings of Paul. And, of course, nobody would disregard the writings of Peter because... He's, he's, he's the, the primary apostle. Anytime you see the apostles listed, Peter's number one. Amen? And so uh, everybody knows Peter. Peter's writings are scripture, but Paul's are too. Praise God. And that's important because he wrote, he wrote about a, a third of the New Testament. You therefore, brethren, beloved, since you know this beforehand... Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Now, wouldn't it be less than smart if having known what you know about the end times and the dissolution of all things 
and the redoing of everything and how God's going to have his, the last say and how there's going to be this great and terrible day of the Lord's uh, judgment where he burns everything up. And then you go away and you live a life of covetousness and you make an idol out of your house, your car, your stuff, and you live for this present world, wouldn't you be foolish to do that, knowing what you know? Isn't it foolish for you to hoard <laughs> and gather up stuff and, and uh, set your affections on all that stuff, knowing that all that stuff is going to burn up? And probably most of your stuff will burn up before that day. Or wind up in the dump or in somebody's yard sale. Every time I go through some stores and I see, I see my wife shopping and picking up little things, you know. She said, what do you think of this? And I say, oh, that's good garage sale stuff. Because <laughs> I, I know where it's going to wind up. It's not going to stay in her house. She's going to look at it a while, play with it a while. Next thing you know, it's gone. Why? Because it's just stuff. Everybody say just stuff. Just stuff. You, therefore, beloved, in knowing this, then grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because all that other stuff is going to disappear someday. And the only thing left is you and Jesus. Because you say... You know, I've had people ask me, well, if the earth is going to burn up and if the heavens are going to burn up, where are we going to be? I'll tell you where we're going to be. We're going to be wherever Jesus is. We're going to be in Christ. And the only safe place when all this cataclysmic destruction is going on, the only safe place is in Christ Jesus. And if you're in him, you're with him. And if you're with him, you're safe. Amen? You see, there's another day that's going to happen before this, and that's the great day of the Lord's return. And by the way, I think he's going to come in a day. When the Lord decides to do things, he doesn't take a lot of time. It may take forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever for it to occur, but once it occurs, it occurs suddenly. And we know all the scriptures, thief in the night, suddenly, all of these things, all these things the Bible talks about in relation to the coming of Jesus, the rapture, in the twinkling of an eye will all be changed. That's fast. Everybody say it's fast. Here's something you might consider. A day. Everybody say a day. Now in the Bible, the first mention of a day was in Genesis chapter 1 when it said that the, from the setting of the sun to the setting of the sun the next day was a day. It's a 24-hour period. In the Bible, the first mentions are very important. In the Bible, first mentions are 24-hour periods, and except where God himself is concerned. He's eternal. But for us, for us, a day is a 24-hour period. Now think about this. There's a shout from heaven. The dead in Christ rise first. We which are alive are changed in a moment, in an instant, 
and we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. How long does that take? A twinkling of an eye. So that could happen at daybreak. At daybreak. Twinkling of an eye, boom, we're with Jesus, and he takes us off to heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now we're in heaven. We're in heaven. Where time is irrelevant. Well, in heaven, we have the reward ceremonies. We have all of the, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. I mean, we're just having a hell day. We're having a wonderful time. Amen. We're just, we're, we're married. We're, we're the bride of Christ. We're getting married. We're sitting down at that wedding marriage supper of the Lamb. We're just, and, you know, we're just taking our time because time is irrelevant there. And then the Lord says, man up. And all of us saints, we, 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 we don our saintly gear, our white robes, we hop on our stallions, and we head back. And when we hit this atmosphere, it might be 9 o'clock in the morning the same day that we left. Are you following me? And the world hadn't even woke up to miss us yet. And we're back. They're saying, who's that? They didn't even know we left. And we're back. Same day. And then Jesus, the Bible says, out of his mouth will come a flaming sword that will devour his enemies. Well, it ain't going to take all day to do that. He'll speak the word and his enemies will be destroyed. And then he can set up his kingdom on the earth. But who says that, same, it, that, who says that the, it could be the same day that he destroys the world, destroys the heavens, and recreates it, makes a new heaven and a new earth, and by the time the sun goes down, the day of the Lord is over, and we're in his eternal kingdom. He said, what about the seven years tribulation? Well, we get that from Daniel's 70th week. There's one scripture in the Bible that talks about 70, a 70th week. One scripture in the Bible that talks about that seven-day period. It's not even mentioned in the New Testament. And yet we built a whole doctrine around our interpretation of what that scripture means. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. There's been tribulation in every generation. What, you know, what makes this generation worthy of more horrendous tribulation than all those others? You know, sin is sin, wickedness is wickedness, people are people. You know, tribulation has existed since man fell. What is that seven years all about? What, what about Daniel's 70th week? Well, why should this 70th week occur 2,000 years after the 69th week? I've always wondered that. You've got 69 weeks. That's Jewish history of 69 weeks. And then you've got the 70th week, and it waits for 2,000 years. It doesn't make mathematical sense. 
But everybody teaches it. They got their charts and they got all this stuff. And this is what this means. And this is what that means. But all they're doing is taking scripture and twisting it to fit their narratives. They're not doing anything different than the news media does. I challenged one guy one time. He had written a book. And I was required to study that book to get ordained. He had written this book. And, uh, and uh, I was, he was in our church, and he had his charts up. And I, I, was, I was 19 years old. And I, I was looking in the front of the book. That book had, was published like in 1942. This was 1968. So I raised my hand. And I said, Dr. So-and-so. I said, Dr. So-and-so. Yes, son. I said, you wrote this book 20 years ago. Have, have you changed any of your thoughts or ideas about these things in the last 20 years? Nope. He said, I was right then and I'm right now. I closed the book and never read it again. You can't tell me you haven't learned anything in 20 years and expect me to listen to you. I mean, and, and, and I made him mad when I asked the question. He was rude. He didn't, he didn't display any of the fruit of the Spirit on me. <laughs> you say, Pastor, you're messing with our eschatology. Yeah, I am. I think you need to question what some of these people say and have them show it to you in the Bible. Have them show you there is a literal thousand-year reign. Have them show you. Amen? Where, where is there a literal thousand-year reign? When in the Bible, the term thousand years means forever. If you go by the laws of first mention. Thousand means infinity. How about that scripture in Isaiah that says, and, and the government, you know, uh, talking about Jesus, the government will be upon his shoulders and of his kingdom it'll be an ever increasing kingdom and there will be no end well if you just if you just give jesus a thousand years you're saying there's an end to it but the bible all the other scriptures say it never ends and when the bible says we rule and reign with him for a thousand years it just means we always reign We're, we'll always rule with that that thousand years is an infinity it's not 999 years plus one it doesn't, it doesn't make sense if you look at the whole Scripture. And you've got to look at the whole Scripture. You can't take this out and this out and then take a few things out of today's newspaper and put it in there with it and weave them all together and make a nice story. Which is what Tim LaHaye did with his Left Behind series. It is totally unscriptural. And yet people think that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> you may... Oh, I can hear those sacred cows <laughs> protesting right now. Woo, don't get mad at me. All I want you to, uh, all I, want, I don't want you to, you don't have to agree with me. All I want you to do is get in the Bible for yourself and find out what the Bible says instead of what everybody else is saying that the Bible says. Now, I'll warn you, you start doing this, you'll lose some friends. I've got preacher friends. I can't even talk to them about what I'm talking to you about right now. I can't even mention it 
because they, they, that stuff is more important to them than our friendship is, which tells me there's something off. There's something off. Now they're going to see me on YouTube, and, and they'll ban me like YouTube did. You know, how many of you have friends that you have to keep separated because they wouldn't get along with each other if they were in the same room? How many of you have friends that you can talk about certain things with, but you can't talk about other things with because they get mad? Amen. I hope you're the good friends. I hope I can raise questions without you getting mad at me. Amen. You see, I used to teach, I used to use all those charts. I used to teach from those charts. And I would say this means this, and this scripture means that. And, I, and I, man, I had the whole thing memorized. I've got tapes back there, cassette tapes back there uh, of, on my teachings that I would never let you listen to today because I've grown, I've studied, and I've found out that a lot of what I believed, I believed them because I trusted people I trusted people to have searched it out before they taught me. But when I discovered that they hadn't searched it out, they were just repeating somebody else who was repeating somebody else. And they were intellectually lazy. And a lot of us Pentecostals were intellectually lazy. See, we got our eschatology from Schofield, who was a Baptist. Schofield Bible. Y'all remember the Schofield Bible? Us Pentecostals, us old-time Pentecostals, we got our eschatology from Schofield, studying Schofield's Bible. But in that same Bible, Schofield says, all of us who speak in tongues are of the devil. Well, I was reading that one day. I got me a Schofield Bible out, and I was reading that. And it said, you know, in his footnotes, that people who speak in tongues today are of the devil. And I thought, well... I can't believe that. I speak in tongues. And if I can't believe that, how am I going to believe all this stuff about the seven years tribulation and, and rapture and the thousand year millennial? How can, I believe every, how can I believe one thing he says and not everything? And then we came out, you know, we finally got us a Pentecostal Bible, the Dakes Annotated Reference Bible. How many of you have ever seen a Dakes Bible? I thought, oh, praise God, I can, and that, that really became my Bible school when I was a young man, and I studied my Dakes Bible, and I'd preach out of my Dakes Bible until one day I was researching his notes. You know, he would say, this scripture proves this, so I'd go to that scripture, and in that scripture, he'd say, no, this other scripture is what proves it, and I'd follow that, and I'd follow it all the way down to his first scripture, and I'd read that, and his interpretation of that scripture was wrong. So he built that whole teaching and doctrine on a misinterpretation of an original scripture. Dake, Mr. Pentecostal guy. And you know what I learned from all that? I have to search it out myself. I have to search it out myself. I just can't take Reverend Dr. So-and-so's opinion of it. Amen? Study, show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Not rightly dividing Schofield. Not rightly dividing Dake. Not rightly dividing anybody else. You study the word of God. You study God's word. Amen. Can you say praise the Lord?
because you don't want to be at the end and left holding the bag. You don't want to be uh, uh, unable to give an answer to the scoffers and the people who raise these questions because people were raising questions to me that I couldn't answer. Do you have all the answers now, Pastor? Absolutely not. And there are a lot of things I can't explain. And, uh, uh, and that's, that's one reason I don't, I don't preach on it a lot. It's because everybody's, everybody's got armpits, right? Everybody's got their own opinions. They're like armpits. <laughs> Amen. Praise God. That means they got two opinions on every subject. Amen. So I, I, li I like to just focus on the gospel itself. But this, this relates to the gospel in the sense that, that God wins. Jesus rules. When it's all said and done, Jesus is still Lord forever. Forever. Not just for a time, but forever. Why? Because we're eternal, and there's no calendars, clocks, or schedules in eternity. Can you say amen? Praise the Lord. Well, we're going to have communion and get back into agreement. <laughs> amen. In case, uh, in case we've fallen out of unity here, uh, let's take communion and get back into unity. Amen? Praise the Lord. That's what communion does for us. It brings us in and reminds us that we are one body. And even though people disagree with us on certain subjects, uh, there are things that I disagree with, like I told you. I told you I had a little, that little disagreement with Kent Christmas, you know, over the God being silent for 400 years. <laughs> I still love Kent Christmas, and I still get a lot out of him. I disagree with Robin Bullock on a lot of stuff. I'm wondering, where did you get that, you know? And, uh, and, of course, most of the world disagrees with me. So, you know, but one thing I do agree with you and every other believer, and that's that Jesus is what it's all about. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. Amen. And when all your charts and all your study books and all your study Bibles burn up the only thing that's going to remain is your relationship with Jesus and by that because of that we're related to each other so communion reminds us of our unity we used to sing a song back in the hippie days y'all remember some of you don't remember the hippie days but We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit, and we are one in the Lord. And we pray that one day our unity will be restored, that, we, that we'll be one and one the same with God, but also with each other. Unity. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Father, right now we just want to thank you for the body of the Lord Jesus that was broken, ripped to shreds, really,
torn beyond the recognition. Scripture says, no man was marred more than him. He became unrecognizable because of his beating and his torture. And we thank you, Lord, that you did it not because of any sin of yours. You did it for our sakes. You took my beating. You took my punishment. And you paid my price. And with your stripes, we're healed. All of us. With your stripes, we're healed. And we receive that in Jesus' name. Amen? And then we take the cup, and it's the cup of blessing. What makes it a cup of blessing? It's because Jesus took the bitter cup. Jesus took the bitter cup upon himself that we might have the cup of blessing. He took our curse that we could have his blessing. And it's all paid for by his own blood. Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you for the cup of blessing. As we drink it together, we become blessed together. We can disagree over end-time Bible doctrines. We can disagree over still water, running water, dirty water, or clean water to be baptized in. We can disagree over King James or NIV and all that, but we are still one blood. We're still one blood. And we love each other beyond all of those disagreements. And everybody said amen? amen? Amen. You can drink together. One old great old preacher who's now gone to heaven used to always end his sermons with now folks remember keep the main thing the main thing amen, amen. do y'all know what the main thing is Jesus keep Jesus keep the main thing the main thing all, all the peripheral things we we stumble about you know looking through a glass darkly but we're crystal clear where Jesus is concerned Amen? Amen? Amen. Praise God. Stand up with me and lift your hands to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm just so glad. I'm so glad that I'm alive today. I'm so glad I live in this time. Lord, the time when we're going to see great and mighty things. Like Ruth said, things that the prophets wrote about and wished that they could be here to see. We are beholding with our own eyes, hearing with our own ears. We're living in the greatest time to be alive there ever was. And Lord, we don't intend to go down with a whimper, but we're going we're gonna to ride the Lion of Judah all the way to the finish line. And we give you praise for it. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Be 